Those whom he justified, he also glorified. So it's, what should we say to these things? What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Is God going to complete what he started in his church? Is he going to complete it in you? I know from time to time it's easy to feel fragile. It's easy to feel like everyone's against us. It's easy to feel the weight and shame of, of our lives in this sinful world. But God is for us. Right? Right? All of this plan that he has put together to transform you and I into the image of his son, all of these things that that he called us and and foreknew us and and predestined us and, and made us to be conformed into the image of his son, to be glorified with him, to be revealed in glory with him, all of those things are not going to fall flat. Paul says elsewhere, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. He's put all his his work into this thing called the church to bring the kingdom of God into the world. And he's going to make it happen. If God is for us, who can be against us? And we know that God is for us. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all how will he also not graciously give us all things he gave up his son this is kind of uh, reminds us of that story of isaac and abraham where abraham took isaac to be sacrificed and god said because you didn't withhold your own son from me i will provide the sacrifice don't touch him And it was credited to him as as righteousness. And so God does the same thing. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Right? He gave so freely of himself. And you imagine... How weighty that is to give up his only begotten son, part of the Godhead, part of the train. He's cutting off a, a piece of himself and giving it to us. Dearly beloved son, and he's giving it freely for us. If he could do that, Paul says, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? If he's willing to give up his son for us so that we could be saved, how much more is he going to make sure that that is a glorious salvation? How much more is he going to make sure that we don't lose it, but we are victorious in in our lives? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for all of us. How will he also 
not also graciously give us all things. You know, we still, after salvation, we have a great need in our lives to live uh, uh, the life of the kingdom of God, right? You all know how, how difficult life can be, right? There's gracious things that God has given us. Dallas Willard always used to say that saints burn grace like jet fuel. It's like we think sinners need grace, right? Because we need mercy. We need, we need God's grace. But you know, to live our lives day in and day out requires us to burn grace like a jet. And God will graciously give us all of that abundantly and above, lavishly giving us all that we need. If he could do it by giving his son, how much more can he provide everything that we need, right? This is a, an argument of the greater to the smaller. If God could lift a mountain, he can lift a pebble, right? If God can do something amazing and huge and, and, and very difficult, then he can do the tiny thing. If God can give his only son, whom he loves, who is a part of him and has existed with him for eternity, for us, then he can certainly take care of every single problem that comes our way day in and day out. You get the argument? God can do the amazing thing. He can take care of all the little things that we face, all the little things that could get in the way. And that's where we, we come to these, these uh, questions that, that Paul asks, uh, these rhetorical questions to ask, uh, what gets in the way of us being uh, glorified with Christ? What, gets in the, what could possibly get in the way? If God is for us, who can be against us? Who shall condemn? I know sometimes we feel condemned and, and feel the weight of our guilt. I was, I was talking with Elaine yesterday as we were riding in the car, and I was like, you know, the one thing I can't really get my head around is, is this idea of this condemnation. Who is... Who is this condemning us? When do we feel this? I don't really fear God's condemnation, but you know, we do have an accuser who loves to accuse us. And she turns to me and says, well, you know, when you do something wrong, you really, really don't want to tell anybody about it. And I'm like, yeah, that's true. <laughs> I really don't. And, and I think that's true of most of us. We don't want to go being raw and, and open about all the things that we do wrong. Because there's shame. There's that voice of the accuser saying, look what you did. <laughs> Can't possibly be a child of God. How are you succeeding at life? All of these ideas are coming up in our heads, right? We feel that condemnation. And I, I assure you, that is not from God. Sometimes we get confused and think God is condemning us. Paul has gone through that, and he has told us that there's, there's no condemnation, right? But we feel it because there is an accuser prowling around like a lion who was seeking someone to devour. So Paul says, who is there to condemn? If you look uh, at Isaiah 
This is in the, in the passage where he's talking about the suffering servant. So this is the, the words of that suffering servant who we know is a, the fulfillment of that prophecy is Jesus. And he says, who will contend with me? Let us stand together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? And we know that Jesus was tempted, that he faced the adversary, and he came out victorious. And we are being conformed into the image of, of Jesus. So Paul can say in Romans 8, chapter, verse 1, Therefore there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. So we are set free in Christ. Who is it who accuses us? When in the face of it, we know who Jesus is. Who would accuse us? Jesus, verse 34, Jesus is the one who died. He was the one who died for us. More than that, he was the one who was raised. And not only that, he's the one who is at the right hand of God. This is our Jesus, and this is who we are. We are in Christ Jesus, right? We have here in this verse the whole gospel in miniature. He has died. He has risen. It's at the right hand of the Father. It reminds me of uh, the mystery that we proclaim in, in, the, uh, in communion. It, a lot of churches, they'll actually say that we proclaim the mystery. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. This is the mystery of, of the gospel. This is Jesus. Who will condemn us when Jesus has died? Jesus has risen. Jesus is at the right hand of God. He has died for us. He took all of that sin and, and, and brought it into one place. And, and just like Pastor Jacob mentioned last week, sin was judged in him. Sin was judged and, de and declared of no account because it was in his flesh. He took on that flesh and became man and brought all of that, and lived a sinless life and, and died declaring and judging sin. And then he judges death to be of no account by rising again from the grave. And then he brings all of that new, the, the humanity and, and matter and stuff with him as he sits at the right hand of God in heaven. And we'll talk a bit about the implications of that in a moment. He's at the right hand of God this, uh, this, this idea, Jesus sitting at the right hand of the Father, the place of privilege, a place of, of honor, and a place of power. God's right-hand man. This has echoes back from uh, Scripture in, in the past. When Jesus was standing in front of Caiaphas, he drew on images from, uh, from, from uh, Deuteronomy and Isaiah to say this, Jesus remained silent, and the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, you have said so. 
But I tell you from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. He's at the right hand of the Father. Stephen, when he was brought before the, uh, the Sanhedrin, he was being asked about this way of, of Jesus and, and why he was preaching it. And he, as they began to argue, he looked at heaven and he said, full of, full of the Holy Spirit, gazing into heaven, he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped up their ears and rushed at him. And then the rest of the story, they took him out and they stoned him to death. Because this was, was blasphemy to them to see Jesus standing at the right hand of God in that seat of power. And we also know <laughs> they laid their coats down at the feet of a young man named Saul. Acts chapter 8 verse 1 says, and Saul approved of his execution. So Saul was there that day when, when, when uh, Stephen said, I see Jesus sitting at the right hand of God. And now Saul, going by his, his Greek name Paul, is giving us that same imagery. Jesus was died, he was raised to life, and now he's seated at the right hand of God. And what is he doing there? Christ is interceding for us. Look, who is it who can bring a charge against us? Who is going to condemn us? When Jesus, who did this work of salvation, who has died and, and rose again and is seated at the right hand of God the Father, is sitting there interceding for us. And it's not only, we, we've heard this, this line about intercession before. A little earlier in, in Romans chapter 8. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So it, the Spirit who lives in us, even when we don't know what to pray, he prays for us. Get, get, try and get a picture of this. God the Father, or God, God the Spirit living inside of you is praying to God the Father on his own. It's like God is talking to himself through you for your good. So we've got Jesus sitting at the right hand of God interceding for us. We've got the Holy Spirit living in us, dwelling in us, interceding for us even when we don't know what to pray for. Not only that, but God the Father. <laughs> in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul, Paul says, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. God is interceding for us. I think oftentimes we get this idea that if, if Jesus is interceding for us, it's like he's begging God not to, to unre unleash his wrath on us. We get this idea, and I, I, I can see how that would be confusing if, if we think that God killed Jesus to take all his wrath. But I want you to know this morning, God is pulling for you. 
God is fully invested in pulling for us. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, they're interceding with each other. They're all praying that we would, we would make it. I love this icon. This is um, it's my favorite icon. This is the Rublev Trinity. Rublev is the, uh, Andrei Rublev is the, is the guy who wrote the icon. And he's depicting here the, the, the three angels who come to visit Abraham as the, as the Trinity. And what I love about it is you look, they're all bowing their heads to one another in deference. They're co-equal parts of God. God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I'm reminded of this, that they, they are like interceding with each other for us. It's, there's no division of will here. There's no, there's no angry God who's being appeased by, by the Son. There is only the God who is for us. And if God is for us, who can be against us? Is that exciting? God is fully for you. He is threefold invested in your salvation and your glorification and the mission of, a, of the church here on earth. And I would say that our ministry as a church, our ministry of reconciliation is entirely wrapped up and surrounded by God's ministry within himself of intercession. God loves people, right? He loves you and he loves me so much that he is interceding constantly with with each other, with with the, the different parts of himself so that we would make it. And his love for people is so great that we are called to be those ambassadors to bring reconciliation to the world. And our ministry as a church is, is wrapped up in the threefold perfect intercession of God. So we come back to verse 34. Jesus, Christ Jesus, who the one who died more than that, who was raised who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed, is interceding for us. Jesus, there's something really cool that happened in in that, that line. When he was raised to new life, he was raised with a body, right? Jesus, this, this, this mystery blows me away. The incarnation, God became a man. He took on flesh. He took on matter. He, he, he came into this world that had chosen sin and decided to become that sinful stuff. So that, again, so that he could deal with it on the cross, Right? But then he didn't leave the sinful matter behind, right? He took that body with him to heaven. And now it is raised, sitting at the right hand of God. There is this stuff, this created matter, is there in heaven now for all eternity. And in so doing, he has declared it again, just like a creation, he has declared it good. 
All creation is groaning for that moment when we will be revealed in glory with him. But who is there to condemn us if that is who is sitting at the right hand of God? Who is there to say that this creation, this created stuff, is not good when this created stuff is at the very right hand of God, God's right hand man? And Christ loves us. We know that God is for us, that Christ is interceding for us, and finally, we know Christ loves us. Paul goes on to say, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Who could possibly break this love of Christ? Who can separate us? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sakes we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Kind of takes a dark turn there. As it is written, Paul's quoting from Psalm chapter 44. And this psalm is, is a lament, it's a complaint. It talks about how great God has been in the past. But the, psalms, the, the psalmists aren't feeling it. They say, all day long my disgrace is before me and shame has covered my face. At the sound of the taunter and the reviler, at the sight of the enemy and the avenger, all this has come upon us. Though we have not forgotten you and we have not been false to your covenant. You know, there were times when God had given them over to the enemy because they had forgotten him. Oh, so many times. Like the song says, we're prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And that was Israel's story. But when the psalmists are, are praying this lament, that's not the case. The enemy has come against them and, and they're like, we love God, we know God. Why has he forsaken us? Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. Yet you have broken us in the, in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would God not have discovered this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. Yet for your sake, we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. It's the verse that he, he quoted there. It's for your sake, God. It's for your name's sake that they hate us. Awake! Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and our oppression? For your, our soul is bowed down to the dust and our belly clings to the ground. Rise up, come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. There is a deep mystery that, that you can you feel. Where is God in those times when we suffer? But we have in the psalm is a glimpse of salvation history. We, we see that God's redemptive work through the people of Israel is uh, 
moving forward and in a way that isn't always clear. Sometimes it has meant that the people of God, the people who were called by his name, who were, were faithful to him, even in the midst of that, would, would see suffering in order to bring the blessings to the world. And that was the, the call that Israel had, was to be the, be the blessing, be the, the image bearer of God to the world around them. It's also an image of uh, something that all of us saints uh, throughout history have experienced. Uh, St. John of the Cross called it the dark night of the soul. It's a time when even though you're following hard after God, even though you, you love him, you don't know where he is. You can't sense that God is moving. You may feel like God is asleep. In fact, one image that is often used to describe the dark night of the soul is that God is sleeping like Jesus slept in the boat in that time when it was storming and the disciples were like, how can you sleep? Don't you know we're going to (laughs) perish? He was sleeping in, in the boat and he is, sometimes it feels like God is asleep in our boat when the storms are raging all around us. When we are being led like sheep to the slaughter. Where's God? This list of things that Paul brings up are things that the early church was going to face, had faced, and will continue to face in the early centuries, continues to face to this day. Tribulation and persecution and famine and nakedness. Where is God in the midst of those things? What we know is that God is for us. He's pulling for us. Even when we can't sense it. Even when we are sheep being led to the slaughter in all things, all day long. You know, it's hard. It's, it may be easier to, to respond to somebody who is saying, uh, you know, pointing a gun at you and saying, renounce your faith or die. And I will say, I, I will not, you know, I will not renounce my faith in my best friend. I think it would be easier to make that commitment in the moment than it is to do it all day long, every day. Which is what we're called to do, right? To live a life of, of laying down ourselves as the world around us is against us. The thing I love in the the poem that St. John of the Cross wrote about the dark night, the way he describes it is um, that he is laying in the garden with the head of Jesus resting on his chest. He's asleep. Jesus is asleep and he's stroking his hair. And Jesus has reached up and touched his neck and, and all of the sense of the world around him just leaves. And he lays there and rests in the lilies, leaving everything else forgotten. The end, the other side of that dark night, is that beautiful union with the beloved. And the thing is, we don't know what's happening while it's happening. The reason it's called the dark night is that we don't sense it. 
St. John says that's great because the devil doesn't know what's going on. <laughs> Neither do we. We don't know that what God is doing and working in us. But at the other side, it has brought us so close to God. So there's that mystery. And there's the lament. As that mystery continues to deepen for Israel, Paul is in the next few chapters going to deal with what does this mean for the people that God had chosen. Is God somehow unfaithful? Is he somehow missing the, what he promised? Because now the Gentiles are getting it and, and the people of Israel aren't. There's a great mystery here. And the mystery was true in Psalm 44 and it continues to be true now. What is God doing? Paul's going to get into that and so, so watch out for that in the next coming weeks. But you have that glimpse here of, of what is God doing with, with his own people who feel like they've been led to slaughter. And the Christians who are experiencing that then and now. He goes on to say, in all of this, in the midst of all of those things, in the midst of this big list of things that are trying to get in the way, we are more than conquerors. So, here is a wonderful Greek word. I love, this word has been sticking with me, and uh, so much so that, what do you... I keep going around saying, uh, calling my family hypernicoman. <laughs> Come to dinner, my hypernicoman. This is, this is a cool Greek word that Paul coins right here. It is literally hyper, which you kind of guess what hyper means. Super above. In fact, you could, it could also be translated super. And then the other part of the word is Nike, <laughs> which is, uh, is, is victory. In fact, the, the goddess Nike was the Greek goddess of, of victory. I, I uh, asked Ella who, who Nike was because she's been reading these uh, Rick Rorden books. These, uh, he, he like personifies these uh, mythological creature, mythological gods and goddesses. And, and she's like, well, you know, Nike is the, is the goddess of victory. And, and I said, well, Paul coins this word hyper Nike. And she's like, Nike's already really hyper because he's, he's got a character that personifies this, this idea of the victory, this, this idea of, of the conquering. And, and we are called hyper Nikes, hyper Nike people. Imagine the superpowers that have come with that. We are super overcomers. We are super conquerors. We have the Spirit of God living in us. We have the adoption to be sons of, and daughters of God. We have righteousness imparted to us by God. Those are our, our superpowers that have made us hyper Nicoman. We have, we have become super conquerors. And it's not only because of all of the cool things that God has done in us, but it's also because of all of that huge list of things that are coming at us. We are more than conquerors because of all of those things, famine and nakedness and tribulation, all of those, each one of those things has a whole huge ocean of experiences like tribulation. It could be 
could be imprisonment, could be floggings, it could be beheadings. We've seen it all. Each of those things mean a world and an ocean of of pain that's coming at us. And because of all of that stuff that God knew was coming at us, he gave us all the things that we could ever need. If he would give us his son, how much more will he give us everything, all the grace that we need to be hypernicomen? He has made us supercharged conquerors over the enemy. Friends, what he's saying is that God's work in you and through you as the church is unstoppable. What God has started in you, don't let the devil tell you that it's not going to work. Don't let the world tell you that you are, you are guilty before God or that you need to carry shame before the people of this world. God has given us everything to be super conquerors. His work in us is unstoppable and Christ's love for you is unbreakable. There will be nothing, no circumstance, no, no power of this world, no situation to face that's going to tear you away from the love of Christ. Would you close your eyes with me for a moment? I want you to just picture, picture Jesus at the right hand of God the Father. And the Holy Spirit surrounding you and lifting you into that heavenly place where you are seated with them in heaven. Let, it, let the awe just bubble up within you that this is our God. This is our God who is for us. This is our Christ who intercedes for us. This is our Christ who loves us. And know that you are there now. You are there today. You are there tomorrow as you go out into this world. You are bringing the kingdom of heaven to the people around you. You are the ambassadors bringing reconciliation to God. And God has given us everything we need. Again, we have communion to proclaim the mystery of, of our faith that Christ has died, that Christ has risen. Christ will come again. If God didn't spare his own son, how much more will he give us everything we need to be hypernicomen, more than conquerors? We'll sing another song of praise and worship to God, this God of great gifts for us. As we stand in awe, let's, let's come and, and take communion together.